back to the bins. Assistant Editors Month. Guest hosts, Kurt Greenfield and Russell Brown. I think I can reach it. There. See, right in here, I told you they couldn't keep us out. <laughs> it's so dusty in here. Where are we? It's the back storeroom. It's the archive of Back to the Bins. This is where they store all the old comics from past shows. I knew they wouldn't have good security here. Wow. This looks like that warehouse from the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, yeah look at that. Look, look at the long boxes over there. The ones that are wrapped up in plastic. It's Dr. Phil's collection, still wrapped up in plastic sheeting, ready for Hurricane Dorian to come through. And look at that. There's two long boxes labeled Mattis Appearances. Must sell. It's in Scott's handwriting. Yeah, and over there, boxes and boxes. They're labeled 25-cent comics to be shipped to Professor Allen. Well, that must be Paul's handwriting. I don't know. I think that's Professor Allen's handwriting. He was an intern, you know. He probably was in charge down here. Imagine that they thought they could throw an assistant editor's month and keep us out. How dare they overlook their West Virginia Bins branch? Um, uh, Kirk, um... Uh, what? I, I, I do have a confession to make. What? Uh, Paul came to me a couple months ago asking me if I wanted to do assistant editor's month. And I just told him I didn't think I'd have the time for it. What? They asked you and they didn't ask me? What the nerve of them? Who scans all of Phil's books for him? Who posts samples of artwork they discuss? Who buys all the back issues to fill in their holes? I didn't want to tell you because I knew you'd get upset. Upset? I'm jealous. I'm jealous. Wait, wait a minute. That gives me an idea. There's got to be a few comics down here that deal in jealousy. Let me look over here in Paul's Silver Age Marvel books. Here we go. And here's a DC box. It says DC Silver Age books. Save for Snark McGill. Phantom Zone show. Oh, 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 here's the Fantastic Four box. I know. No, it was right after the Galactus trilogy. Ah, I got it. FF51. Here's a Silver Age DC World's Finest. This is going to take me a while. All right, then I'll go first with the Marvel book while you still look. Fantastic Four, number 51. Title of your story is This Man, This Monster. Writer is Stan Lee. Penciler, Jack Kirby. Anchor, Joe Sinek. Letter, Artie Sinek. Cover credits go to Penciler, Jack Kirby, and Anchor, Joe Sinek. And your editor is Stan Lee. I should tell you, Russell, a lot of comic professionals regard this 51st issue of the Fantastic Four as the perfect one-shot, the done-in-one standalone story, the very peak of Stan and Jack's run on the FF. It continually turns up on their top 100 or favorite lists over the years. Now, there's some people who just don't get it. They, they don't understand why this 
strange little story that is by no means perfect. It's got flaws in it, but why it is so well revered. And just recently, I happened to have seen a posting where Scott was scratching his head online saying, what's the deal? Well, maybe you can answer some of that when we go through this one. I'm sure he'd appreciate it. If he listens to any show that he's not on. Oh, I think he'll be tuned <laughs> into this one. Or somebody will. will somebody will, yeah. Well, the cover of Fantastic Four 51 is one of those iconic covers. You may remember last time we did an assistant editor's month, I chose an FF issue that had an iconic image of Mr. Fantastic standing yes. in the front. This only vaguely resembles that, and that we have Ben Grimm and the thing standing front and center in front of a sort of a gray-toned background. And he's flanked on either side by one is an image of Sue pleading with him, pointing to the other side, which shows Reed tracking some sort of green energy field. There's no indication of Johnny here, because he's not in, in this storyline. But this is just a terrific image, because it shows Ben either, well, he's torn up. He doesn't know what to do, or... He's, he's emotionally upset, but his back is to read and to sue, and he's faced with making a decision. And the title is classic. This man, this monster. I'm going to pause here just for a second because I found this recently in um, the sixth volume of the uh, Marvel Masterworks Fantastic Four issues, and Stan Lee does a two-page introduction to the volume, but I want to excerpt one paragraph that hopefully this will, will in his words, tell you what he's thinking and how he regards his story. So I'm quoting Stan Lee here from the foreword of this Marvel Masterwork. He says, let's start with this man, this monster. I've always been particularly proud of this one, in which a deadly supervillain makes a supreme sacrifice in order to... Ah, this isn't fair. i got no right to give the plot twists away. But I'll beg you, too, will find it hard to finish the last page without a lump in your throat. I'm particularly partial to it because it involves heavy characterization and emotion, as much as action and suspense. As for the title itself, it's been paraphrased and imitated in more stories than any other that I know of. And I think that's, you know, words from one of the two, uh, the creative team that, that really explains why this stands out in people's memory. It's immediately following what's known as the Galactus Trilogy, the first appearance of Galactus. It's a much more down-to-earth adventure as opposed to this cosmic drama that we've just seen play out. So I'm going to turn to the first page here, okay. which is almost a recreation of the cover, and that you have a shot of Ben Grimm standing in the rain. Now, this was at a time period when Jack was still doing symbolic splash pages, and the correct term for the first page, full-page illustration, is splash page. No play on words there, no pun intended, because he's standing in the, in the soaked rain. This is something that not everybody does, but Jack really sell for it. And I finally figured out why you did so many of these. Frequently they would mimic the front cover, but not always. Part of the rationale was, hey, back in the day, comics were loved by kids. They used to hold them up, put them in their back pocket, trade them. They used to read them over and over again. And the covers would get loose. Sometimes the covers would tear off. So it was not unusual to see lots of coverless comics in a kid's room, or being traded around, or left around in the playground, or what have you. If the cover is gone, this splash page would, in effect, draw you in, or have the same effect. So that's one explanation for why they did these symbolic splash pages. But I really like this. It's a great image of Ben, yeah. just standing in the rain in his trunks. So I'm going to turn over to the second page. 
basically he's wandering through the rainy streets of New York City, becoming dejected after the end of last issue, where he misunderstood the interaction between Alicia and the Silver Surfer on the top of the Baxter building, thinking that she, for some reason, preferred or had fallen for the Silver Surfer. She walked right past him as if he wasn't there. So he turned and walked off and out of the team and left without comment. And then when she realizes, Ben, where are you? Where? Why did he leave? She doesn't understand how she snubbed him. But this is an excuse to have Ben leave the team. And ironically, there is a repeating pattern in the first several dozen of the Fantastic Four. Every 10 issues, Ben leaves. He leaves in issue 30 to team up with Diablo. He leaves in issue 40 after beating Dr. Doom and joins the Pride Four briefly. And then here we are in 50, he walks off. So this is not exactly plotted out, but it happens again when we get to issue 70. Again, he's left the team, so it's kind of a repeating note where they're happening. Anyway, so he's walking through the city, the pouring rain's there, and he's befriended. He just happens to choose the doorway to get out of the rain of somebody who has an ulterior motive. You never really see this guy's face terribly clearly because it's in shadow, but the guy is bald and has a huge rival extremely strong eyebrow or ridge line that somehow looks familiar, as we're about to find out. Anyways, he asked him to come in, and obviously Ben is weary, having just gone through the Galactus trilogy, and also he's cold, he's wet, he's not thinking straight. So the guy befriends him, offers him a cup of coffee, and although he doesn't quite figure it out, the guy's drugged with coffee, uh, or at least that's implied. We meet the guy, we can see him full on. He sort of looks like Professor X of the X-Men, but not really. He's got this huge brow line, and that's his major feature. And so he befriends him, he says he's a scientist. He claims that he's on the, the level of Reed Richards, which maybe he is, maybe he isn't. At any rate, he's somewhat full of himself. And on the bottom of page three in the left corner, we can see him kind of putting a hand on Ben's shoulder as Ben's feeling the effect of the drug coffee. As uh, he's clearly manipulating, invites him to lay down. Well, here, you can stay here. So he lays him out on the couch and then passes out. By the fourth page, we can see how the guy opens up the closet door and there's huge Kirby tech there. Clearly, this guy was ready for him or he's prepared for something. And although he monologues, it's pretty clear that he wants to do harm to Ben, to the, the thing, as he straps some devices on him. Stripped off his shirt, sits down adjacent to him in an over-the-sub chair, or an easy chair, and he puts some sort of harness on him, and then he activates the machine. And through a crackling of energy, curvy crackle, and the dissolve, he transforms himself. We're going to call this guy the changeling, for lack of a better term. We never have a name for him that I know. But he transforms himself into the thing. And lo and behold, at the top of the fifth page, he has transformed Ben Grimm back into human form. So he's taken the appearance of the thing. There's some unexplained tech. Cut back to the Baxter building where Reed is working on some project. I can't stop now, Sue. I'm just too much into it. Gee, uh, we always have to have new defenses from aliens, from Galactus, what have you. So sure enough, she says, does this have anything to do with that lead-lined room that you've got locked in the back? And he's like, how did you find that out? Well, she gives it advice. She should know something. And at that moment, in walks the thing, or the changeling, as I'm going to refer to him. Oh, Ben, you're back. Yeah, sure. Nice of you to notice. So as he arrives, 
he's kind of playing the role of the ignorant Ben Grimm, the ignorant thing, as Reed explains, that he needs to handle this experience, with this um, experiment. And just about the time that he's demonstrating his strength, in charges a very human Ben Grimm, madder than a wet hen, saying, hey, hey, he's a fake, don't trust him. And of course, in typical Marvel fashion, they're confused, they don't believe the hero, the uh, conflict erupts, and as Ben challenges the creature known as the Thing, Reed intervenes just a little bit, and the Thing, the Changeling, reaches over and crushes a, a barbell and says, look, could I do this if I wasn't the Thing? You know, you're an idiot, get out of here. And so Ben Grimm, very upset that he's not being believed, now there's a reason why some people don't swallow this. If he is the member of the Fantastic Four, certainly he would be able to repeat or recite details that he and he alone would know. How did they beat Galactus? What did they say last Thursday? Did they really go to the park? Did they not? Did they fight somebody else? I mean, they have a wealth of ways to prove that it was really him, where the thing would not be able to do that. But we're going to skip over that. That's the bottom of page seven. We get into eight. He goes storming out, and Reed immediately says, Hey, listen, I need your help. Ben, I'm counting on you. If anything goes wrong, only you can save me. So Reed gets suited into this spacesuit, or at least the breathing helmet. He opens up the door that's labeled Experiment Space Time. And in a full page, I hesitate to call it a splash. Uh, we've corrupted the language of comics these days. The splash page originally was the first page of a 20-page comic. Then it kind of got modified. People started using the term for any full-page illustration. So people would look at page 9 and say, oh, this is another splash page. And technically that's not right. But, okay, so there's a full-page illustration of a very curvy-esque machine that looks like it was designed by M.C. Escher. It's all sorts of weird. And there's some sort of a ramp that leads into it. A part of this is to try to communicate to you the foreign nature of this, that we are literally going to go into another dimension. This is a portal. You never really, beyond this issue, see another representation that looks like this. The concept of having a dimensional barrier or having an entryway in the Baxter building that they control behind a locked door will become critical over the next 20 to 40 issues and a repeating element that comes again and again and again. Roughly every 10 issues, but again, that's a repeating pattern. We're not going to go there. So Ben's going to be the anchor for Reed, who's getting ready to go into the machine or go through the portal. And of course, Sue, not terribly strong at this point, being a worry worse, says, oh, but the danger over here, can we... Okay, we're going to retire from this, put this on the back burner, and instead we're going to the Johnny Storm plot that's going on at uh, the campus. He's gone away at the end of last issue to college, and he's met his roommate, Wyatt Wingfoot, but was daydreaming and didn't hear the background on Basically, Wyatt is a clone or a tribute to a great natural athlete, an American Indian athlete, uh, Jim Thorpe, if I'm not mistaken, is the real character. However, Stan is going to play loose and free with some of the names here and switch things up a little bit. But the point is that this is off-campus hygiene, says an alt shop. Whitey Mullins, the uh, know-it-all football quarterback, is trying to throw his weight around and pick a fight with Johnny. And Johnny really doesn't want to be a celebrity, but he gets drawn into this. Just about the time that the fight erupts, 
why Winkia, who's in the booth across from him, stands up and boys is big and broad. He just kind of stands up and puts a stop to him, telling the Whitey, go back to your booth, leave us alone. And about that time, the coach intervenes and says, Whitey, stop, stop making the, you know, big fights. I'm just about done with you. So he's obviously, the coach has been uh, pushed around by Whitey because Whitey's full of himself and his big man on campus, literally, until, well, here we have Wyatt Winkler who's shown up, and clearly the subplot is that he's going to be a rival, he's going to be a threat to uh, Whitey's power base. Anyway, so this is just a little bit of campus intrigue. Ironically, even though this runs about three issues in this issue, and then three pages in this issue, and goes on to be a subplot over the next maybe ten issues, the story of Johnny at college only runs from Fantastic Four 50 to about 61, 62, and then it just kind of gets dropped. It never really pays off. It never really goes anywhere. It's almost as if Stan plotted out a year in advance or had an idea and then got distracted or forgot. Or maybe Kirby forgot about it, but at any rate... It's interesting because there's this mix of sub-characters that could have tied into Peter Parker, but it doesn't really go anywhere. It's just a, a soap opera subplot that keeps cooking in the back burner. So we're going to skip over and go back to the Baxter building. we got Reed and Sue saying goodbye to each other, and Reed enters the portal, throws a switch, plunges through the crackling Kirby crackle into the dimensional barrier, into the distortion area, and ultimately through a kaleidoscope of ribbons and lights. And so, in another splash page, this is a photo montage. Uh, this is something that Kirby would experiment with every couple of issues. He didn't use them too much, but they were difficult to reproduce in the, the uh, printing plates of the day. So he, they weren't always successful. But uh, this one is pretty good. As you see, a cartoon figure, a drawn figure of Reed Richards, floating in some very odd concentric circles of planets. Anyway, he discovers that, yes, he's gotten through, he's in this other dimension, and there's some sort of representation of Earth, a negative Earth, a counter-Earth, and all the matter, all the asteroids, all the, the meteors are all being drawn into this Earth, this negative Earth, and they're going to go through some sort of an explosive force. In other words, it's negative energy and positive energy. This is the first representation of what we come to know as the negative sun. But, because they haven't nailed down the term, Stan gets it wrong. He forgot that he used the term negative zone to describe the shield that is over top of the Inhumans' land. That was the technique or the, the device they used to end that saga, that Romeo and Juliet saga that they'd done just about three or four issues earlier. And so they reused the concept, or the, the title, Actually, what they should be describing this as is subspace, which they also introduced, but Stan was never a great one to write things down and remember all the details, and so he muddied the water. After this issue, what Reed is going through is always identified as the negative zone, and we basically just forget about it or sweep under the carpet for the use of the term for the big silver shield over the humans. That subplot pays off in 59. So that's why this is flawed. Stan just wasn't paying close enough attention to dot all the I's and cross the T's correctly. He got him switching around so he was crossing the I's and dotting the T's. Obviously, Reed's in distress. 
rediscovers, holy smokes, I can't stay here, I'm going to get sucked into this destruction zone. So he tugs on his lifeline, his lifeline goes all the way back to the distortion area, back to Earth. And he tugs, saying, come on, Ben, pull him out of here, where are you, Ben? Cut back to the back of the building, where we have the changeling thing, holding anchor on the end of this tether. And he feels the tug, but he doesn't respond at first. He's thinking, what do I do here? All of a sudden, I don't feel the jealousy, the envy of Reed Richards. I realize what a great guy he is. He's been listening to everything that Reed has said, and how Sue interacted with him, and how Ben interacted with him. And he suddenly realizes, boy, I have misjudged Reed Richards all along. All of a sudden, I don't have the hate, the jealousy, the animosity that I had before. And then he's decided, well, okay, I'm going to reel him back in, but it's too late. The tether snaps, and as it gets pulled into the machine, the changeling charges after it, into the machine to grab a hold of it. And as he gets it, the changeling is now pulled through the curvy crackle, through the distortion zone, and ultimately, as Reed is pulling on the cable in the asteroid belt, he pulls the changeling thing to him and says, Ben, you fool, you should have come after me. We're both doomed now. And looming behind him is the negative Earth, waiting to draw them, attract them, and obviously they're going to die. They have no means of coming back through the atmosphere. They are stranded in this, this negative zone, this outer space. So Reed shakes his hand and says, look, I've been proud to be your friend. There's nobody that I would have trusted. I'm just sorry that you have to perish with me. And at this point, the changeling realizes, boy, have I ever misjudged this guy. Even in the face of death, he's more concerned about me than he is about himself. So grabbing his arm, winding up like a baseball pitcher, he winds up and throws Reed back the direction that they came from. And he sails like a missile. They've been standing on a rocky asteroid or meteor as it's being sucked towards the Earth. And using that as a basis, this changeling thing throws Reed back towards the distortion area. And then he turns around, sits down sadly on this rock, and just rides it as it heads in towards the explosive atmosphere above this negative Earth, apparently to his death. We cut to... Alicia's building, and we see a very human Ben Grimm, who's in a suit and tie, all ready to take Alicia out, gets to the front door, gets ready to knock on the door, and just as he's about to tap on the door, his hand transforms back to the thing. He looks at it in amazement, and then discovers, I'm back! I've got my powers back! I'm the thing again! So he turns and bolts, leaving Alicia to answer the door, and there's nobody there. Once again, she gets his short end of the stick. Cut back to the Baxter building, Reed Richards comes flying through the machine, through the dimension area, through the portal, and to the ground with a whoosh. And as he collapses on the floor, there Sue is, who takes the helmet off him and says, Oh, Reed, Reed, what happened? I thought we'd lost you. And Reed is just distraught. He's like, that's all my fault. Could have been a risk. He sacrificed him for me. Oh, this is terrible. I feel so bad. And quietly coming in through the door behind him, you see the thing now retransformed in an ripped oversized suit, but looking at his hands and going, I don't know how it happened, but I'm back. And they're like, Ben, how could you? But they don't quite understand it. But they all embrace and they hug him and kiss him and 
says, where's the creep who tried to impersonate me? Creed, very sadly, says, I don't think we have to worry about him anymore. We don't know who he was or what his motives were. But whatever he was after, he faced the final price and he faced it like a man. And that's the end of the issue. Next issue, the Black Panther. But we don't know who or what that is. So that's the end of this 51st issue of Fantastic Four. I've kind of summarized it as I flipped through the pages and kind of told you the story, warts and all. Hopefully you'll understand it's a sort of a morality tale, but not to judge too quickly and that maybe Reed is a better person than we give credit for. Some people would say, you know, he's still a dick. You listen to uh, the Fantastic cast, they frequently insult Reed by calling him that. But this is such a great character piece because it not only illuminates part of Reed's character, but also Ben's character. It doesn't do so much for Sue. There's a little subplot that defines why Linkfoot and Johnny and also Whitey Mullins and the coach. I think it's Coach Thorpe, if I remember his name right. But it's, it's not heavy on action, although it does introduce the concept of the negative zone in this portal, using the wrong labels, using the wrong names for it. But the concept, the seed is planted, and so it's important because that seed is going to grow into lots of themes. It's going to grow into Captain Marvel and McCree and a whole Blastar, Anilius, a whole lot of Marvel Universe cosmic down the road. But this was the first appearance, the first wrinkle, if you will, where they introduced that concept. As we go forward, Reed recognizes, boy, this is really dangerous. I can't have this just open to the public. Nobody needs to know about this. So he puts it behind an armored door. At times that door is depicted as a bank vault, at times it's depicted as an electronically guarded portal, but sometimes it's just a crackling doorway, but it is secured, except, gee, for all the security measures he puts in there, there's an awful lot of supervillains who seem to get access to it, or other characters, I mean, it's a repeating plot device, so that's why they introduced it, that's why they keep bringing it back, because they keep stirring the pot. But uh, that's my story. That's the Marvel book for this week. I just wanted to share it with you, and hopefully Scott and some of the other people who don't think much of the story, maybe they have a little bit more insight to it. I didn't read every word of the dialogue, but I encourage you to read it. You'll spot the words in it and the kind of the, the jump in logic in a couple of spots. I have to tell you, in my original collection, I did not have this for the longest of times. I was an adult before I found a used copy the back of uh, Comic Buyer's Guide newspaper and bought it. I don't remember how much I paid for it, but it was worn and wrinkled, and it fit in perfectly with my collection. Everybody refers to this as a peak, a milestone. Any questions? Well, I did have a couple. Reed keeps on experimenting with the negative zone, doesn't he? Yes. Why does he do that? Just because it's unknown and Reed has to know everything? Some of that, and also because the, there's an underlying theme through the early Fantastic Four that at times gets lost, but they're explorers. The original concept was that they were sort of the Marvel version of the challengers of the unknown, that they dared death, they dared death to go on their initial ride to the stars or the moon or wherever they went, that they were bombarded by cosmic rays, and... Through the whole book, anytime they wanted to introduce a new concept, whether it's an alien civilization or another race coming from outer space or an alien coming to Earth, this was the book that they did it in. So part of it is the spirit of adventure, challenging the unknown to explore. They are explorers at heart. And that comes in again and again 
although it's not the central reason for the vote, but it's, it's absolutely one of the elements, and it's why we get the inhumans, it's why we get the negative, it's why we get the creed, the scrolls, every layer that gets peeled away or, or gets added just enlarges the Marvel Universe and sets the stage for what ultimately becomes cosmic Marvel Universe. And that blossoms in all sorts of books in the Bronze Age and in the 70s and 80s and onward. And you said the Johnny College plotline was pretty much dropped, so we don't know if he graduated or he just dropped well, out or anything like that? About halfway through these ten issues or so when he's in college, about two issues, he comes home from college, gets a break, and he joins the FF on a vacation, if you will, to go see Wakanda, the first introduction of the Black Panther in Wakanda. So he and White Wingfoot come along, and they get involved in a battle royal in Wakanda. Well, as a thanks for helping him out, the Black Panther gives to Johnny when he finds out, gee, he really is one half of the Romeo and Juliet pair. He gives him a gyro globe, which is a newfangled craft that Jack Kirby designed, to go search or go back to the Himalayas to try to find an entrance, a way to get in under that shield, into the land of Shangri-La, or the Great Refuge, depending on how you want to describe it, where the Inhumans live. That's where Crystal is trapped. That's where Johnny wants to get back to. He comes back into the main storyline, and then he takes off with Wyatt. They, they skip college, if you will. They go find a way. They stumble on Lockjaw, the gigantic teleporting dog, who takes them on a wild romp and jumps from planet to planet, dimension to dimension, but never getting any closer to the Inhumans. And that frustrates John. He's very upset because the dog has been trained to mislead people, not to bring them to the Inhumans. And so once he tumbles to that, he gets really forked off. And when it got about that time, Stan and Jack had to do another Fantastic Four annual once a year, a double-sized issue. They come back to have an adventure that is the recovery of the original Human Torch. It was an excuse to have the original Human Torch and Johnny Storm fight each other. I won't go into it, but it's a critical Silver Age key issue that, again, is a launch point for all kinds of stories down the road. So he returns for that one, and then as that story ends, he and Lockjaw and Wyatt get ready to take off again on another dimension hop, and then they come back just in time to fight Cosmic-powered Doctor Doom. So the point is, the subplot of Johnny and Wyatt leaving the college environment but going off on this walkabout, if you will, or this adventure on their own, weaves in and out of the book until finally they come back just in time for a final confrontation with Dr. Doom. And as the thing plays out, they get to the end of that adventure, everything's happy, and the last that we see of the college plot line, Johnny is attending a football game with Wyatt Wingfoot, as Crystal and the Inhumans have broken out of their shield, Crystal gets permission to take Lockjaw and to go find Johnny. And at that point, Black Bolt, who's their ruler, says, yes, go ahead. You can do that. So she leaves and gets to the football game, having just missed Johnny, who's taken off, being summoned by a Fantastic Four flare gun into an adventure. And so she finally catches up to him at the Baxter building. And while he should be delighted that she's there... Instead, they're facing a crisis as Reed is trapped in the negative zone, about to be killed, and there's nothing they can do about it. But she, I'm kind of spoiling this one for you, she figures out, oh, there is something that I can do. She transports back to the Inhumans and turns to Black Bolt and says, we got to help them. Reed Richards, our friend, he is in serious trouble. 
we need somebody to rescue him. And you don't see two black hole picks, but he points to one of them, and that person goes back and does successfully rescue Reed. The cover of issue 62, as dramatic as it is, would have you believe that it's supposed to be the Silver Surfer. But Stan does a change-up halfway through it, even though the cover teases that it looks like it's going to be the Silver Surfer. Instead, it turns out to be one of the humans, and they rescue Reed, and they get him back to safety, and everything seems to do fine, except something has followed him back out of the negative zone. We come to know him as Blastar, and he's not a nice person. He's a criminal. He's, uh, I won't get into that story, but this is all classic Fantastic Four, Silver Age, soap opera. So yeah, the Johnny Storm college thing, the last you see of it is when he departs real quick from the football game, and who's left behind there? Well, Crystal shows up with Blackshaw, Wyatt Linkwood is there, and Peter Parker is snapping pictures from the sideline. He's working for the Daily Bugle and doing some sort of an assignment for him. But that's the last mention of the college. It just gets forgotten, swept under the rug. It just never leaves anywhere. Hmm. I think Marvel has missed an opportunity that they should have gone back, collected all of those together. I think they should uh, have, have made a little trade paperback or maybe a graphic novel out of only those college stories and then hired somebody like Roger Stern or Dan Slott to continue that story and make it pay off someplace down the road. Or maybe they could have spun it into another ongoing title. Clearly, Stan Lee had intended to do a storyline with the college crowd because he was on the lecture tour at this point. And he had discovered that he had an awful lot of readers that had graduated from high school and gone to college and were hanging on every issue of the Fantastic Four and Thor. And so he had chapters of followers on the college campus, and so he tried to pitch this storyline right into their wheelhouse, something that they would be familiar with. And I guess for a while he did that, but whatever got him distracted, and they didn't pursue it. They didn't finish it, whatever it was supposed to be. It's probably more than you wanted to know. Uh, my Fantastic Four comic knowledge isn't as vast as yours, of course, but I pretty much know them from cartoons. I never really delved into the comic books that much. I was lucky. I started buying them off the rack with 55. I could have bought them off the rack with 54, but I didn't understand the serial nature of comics. In my head, because of my older sister, I thought every comic book was always in print. It always existed, like the Nancy Drew mystery series or the Hardy Boys series, numbers 1 through 35. They were always on the shelf at the bookstore. You would always go in and buy another copy of number 21, whatever that story was. I did not understand that you had to strike while they were on the spinner rack. And about the time that I figured that out, 55 had come out, and I went, oh, it's got the Silver Surfer and Bill on it. I've read this one before. I fucked it pulled it off the spinner rack and started flipping through and going, I don't recognize this story, but clearly they're the same characters. I just read this in 50. I've got a collection of used comics that I got from the school carnival. Slowly it dawned on me, oh, this is 55. I have a copy of 48, 49, 50. I skipped 51. I had 53. And then this is 55. Oh, I should buy this. The penny finally dropped. Of course, I didn't have a paper route or any cash as a kid of 10, but I started buying all the Fantastic Four and any guest star appearance of the Fantastic Four 
and that slowly broadened out, so I was buying Thor's and Captain America's and all of Jack Kirby's work at this period. That's why I know these stories backwards and forwards. This is what I cut my teeth on. I read these things again and again and again. I read their letters pages. I studied the ads. Remember, there was no internet back then. Right. There were no comic book stores. The only way you could find these would be that you would read the comments in the letters section about an issue that came out three months before. So issue 55 was commenting on issue 52. Issue 60 was commenting on issue 54. And so you would fill in the blanks of what must have happened in those issues that you didn't have by how the readers were reacting. Or a short blurb in the Mighty Marvel checklist, which was nothing more than a, a listing of all the mags that were on sale this month. Not always accurate, but the greatest thing was they had an extra page that they couldn't sell, and so they filled it with in-house ads. So you'd have four comic covers drawn in this issue of the Fantastic Four that showed you Thor, Cap, Spidey, Daredevil, or whatever the mix was that particular month. So you know what covers you were looking for at the yard sales, or with your cousin, or with the guy down the street, or if you saw it, you went, oh, I need that now. That's the only way that you had to complete your collection or to expand your collection. There was no such thing as having a complete collection. That was years down the road, but that was the start of my comic collecting as a kid of 10. And I kept at it all the way until I was a sophomore in high school. And I kind of uh, moved away from it, grew up. Eight years later, after a couple college degrees, I was out on my own. And guess what? <laughs> the death of Phoenix and uh, the X-Men was just occurring the Dark Phoenix saga, and I got sucked right back in. That's more than you wanted to know, I'm sure. That's pretty much my story. I got out of comics pretty much as I started high school, and pretty much after Amanda and I got married, that's when I restarted backtracking Bronze Age and all the characters that I loved, and I'm still at it today, and she allows me. That's good. Hopefully you can afford them. I did ask permission before I even started. Would you mind if I started my comic collecting again? And she had no aversion to it. <laughs> Does she read them also? Mm, no. Well, at least she allows you a hobby. That's great. Yeah. She loves the movies, though. Right. That's how you can get her into it. Right. So, what have you got from the DC bin? Have you found something? Yes, I have. It's in pretty good shape considering the age of it. I found World's Finest Comics number 169. The cover, I could say, if anybody remembers my show, the DC Comics Present Show, I had a segment called Rust, 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 This segment showcases comic books I want to brag about. I will be limiting the choices to comics I had as a kid and have recently reacquired, comics purchased from comic ads I saw as a kid but wasn't able to buy back then, and comics bought to finish a comic book series run. Seeing this cover in a comic ad was what would place it into uh, Russell's comic brag. I remember it distinctly and just wondered why Superman was pumping up Batman's tires by hand. Of course, once you get into the story, you understand. The rest of the cover just shows Supergirl and Batgirl hiding behind a white fence or wall. 
It's made of wood, I can tell that. As Superman is pumping up the tire with one of those old-fashioned pumps where you pump it by hand, he says, Since I, puff, lost my superpowers, it's a job just to pump up this flat tire, Batman. And Batman is holding the spare tire. Although, when you think about it, why is Superman pumping up a flat tire when Batman has a spare? Batman says, We're all washed up, Superman. All I have left is this broken-down Batmobile. And it's Supergirl who I mentioned was hiding beside Batgirl, thinks, Ha! Our scheme worked. Batgirl and I have made those heroes has-beens. And it is neat to see the bat hubcap along with a bolt remover and a jack on the ground. I won't be going page by page like you did. Uh, I'm pretty boring. I just find a synopsis and read it. That's good. I wish I could be like you guys, or like Dr. Bill does, just come up with a synopsis on the fly, but I just don't have that much confidence yet, I guess. World's Finest Comics, number 169, and I did not realize that comics was actually in the title for the longest time. I just considered it World's Finest. The title of the story is the Supergirl-Batgirl plot. Cover date is September 1967. On sale date is June 25th, 1967. And your cover price is 12 cents. Your writer is Carrie Bates. Penciler Kurt Swan, anchor George Klein. And you don't have a letter or colorist. They didn't give them the credit for it back then. Cover credits go to Penciler Kurt Swan and anchor George Klein. And your editor is Mort Weisinger. As always, these info points come from Mike's Amazing World of Comics. While on patrol over Gotham City, Supergirl witnesses a large hand formed out of gas trying to grab her. As she fights it off, she is soon joined by Batgirl, and the two end up being captured by the gaseous hand. However, the two have managed to get free and decide that they make a great team. Later, as a televised broadcast where a time capsule dedicated to Superman and Batman is being buried, the two superheroines, who are watching the event in their civilian guises, become jealous of their male counterpart's success as heroes, and both decide to make everyone adore them instead. Later in Metropolis, when Superman botches placing a cornerstone into a building, Supergirl swoops in to stop it from toppling on the people. While in Gotham City, when a crook grabs Robin during a fight, Batman suddenly becomes a coward, and Batgirl comes to Robin's rescue. Superman, Batman, and Robin later meet in the Batcave to air their suspicions of the girl's intentions. The next day, coming back from a patrol, Batman and Robin are shocked to find that the entire contents of the Batcave have been stolen. While in the Arctic, Superman arrives just in time to see Supergirl making off with his fortress of solitude. Trying to stop her, Superman suddenly finds his powers fail, and he is soon picked up by Batman and Robin, who arrive in the Batplane. They then give the powerless hero a lift back to Metropolis. The next day, while busting up a hideout for criminals, Batgirl manages to take Robin and the Batplane, while Batman is busy tying up the crooks. Being in Metropolis in the Batmobile, Batman finds Superman, who still doesn't have his powers. Batman inspects himself, and also finds that his secret identity has also changed, as his face is no longer that of Bruce Wayne. Soon the Batmobile crashes, and soon the two heroes are openly mocked by Supergirl and Batgirl, as they struggle to change the Batmobile's flat tire. Restoring Superman's powers, Supergirl challenges him to a duel in space. During the fight, Supergirl hurls a meteor at Superman that Superman's X-ray vision reveals to a kryptonite inside. Defeating, quote, Supergirl, Superman pulls off a mask, revealing his opponent to be Black Flame from the Bottle City of Candor. Meanwhile, Batman battles who he thinks is Batgirl, until he defeats her and unmasks her to reveal that, quote, Batgirl is really Catwoman in disguise. Defeated, these crooks explain how they pulled off their latest exploit and take them to where they have the real Batgirl and Supergirl hostage. As they do so, they are suddenly destroyed, and it turns out that they were really decoys and the real Supergirl and Batgirl arrive. 
They explained that the whole thing was a plot to trick Superman and Batman from trapping themselves into another dimension. With the plot revealed, quote, Catwoman and, quote, Black Flame are revealed to really be Batmite and Mr. McPiddle, who are bearing to see if they can make a trick the heroes in, into trapping themselves. With Batmite as the winner, he tricks McPiddlick into saying his name backwards and restores everything to normal before returning to his own dimension. Before I go on, this story has been reprinted in Showcase Presents Batgirl Volume 1, it's a trade paperback from 2007, and Showcase Presents World's Finest Volume 3, a trade paperback from 2010. Wow. Pretty much a 60s story, isn't it? <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a very, very Silver Age DC convoluted story that probably started with a concept that the editor said, okay, we want to pit this team against that team. Find a way to make this all make sense. I was going to say, uh, I noticed a couple of things right in the middle, right off the bat. The giant hand that grabs them or that is in the way. By coincidence, last night I happened to see Who Learns for Adonis, the classic Star Trek episode. Uh It begins with a gigantic green hand that reaches out and grabs the Enterprise. Of course, we were making fun of it as we were watching it late last night, but it's an odd coincidence that that image would happen to be so common in, in popular culture. Yeah. You know, as I was reading this story along, doing some, some research so that I'd be familiar with it, and by the way, a tip of the hat to uh, both Paul and Scott for being very supportive and helping me find a copy of this so that I gave you to be up to speed. I've got to tell you, as I'm reading it along... And I'm discovering, what? Superman loses his powers? What? They stole the mountain, you know, the fortress of Solitude? <laughs> they took the plane. I mean, each ridiculous level that it advances to again and again. I was thinking, this doesn't make sense. This is something like uh, somebody with magical powers, like a Mr. McFiddlelick, or right. you know, somebody would be able to do this. doesn't make sense why the girls would be doing this. Sure enough. <laughs> A couple pages later, big reveal. Like, and then when I got to the point, what is it, Black Flame and, and yeah. Catwoman? I'm like, what? How do they get these powers? <laughs> they don't have this skill set. At least, I'm not familiar with Black Flame. I've never seen her before. But I certainly know that Catwoman couldn't possibly be pulling off some of this stuff. Right. Yet another reveal. So maybe they were laying the clues, and I was picking up on that. But, boy, talk about a Silver Age story. <laughs> you probably picked up better than I could have. Let me back up a step. I apologize. Uh, Fantastic Four Fifty One was dated June nineteen sixty six. So if I was ten years old then, I'm eleven, and I'm starting to make the trip around my small town from drugstore to grocery store to drugstore to whatever I could find where they had a spinner rack. And I think I saw this issue that you just reviewed on the spinner rack in 67. And I confess, although I'm not a DC fan, especially not at this age, I probably picked it up off the rack, and I probably flipped through it. Because the hook of having Supergirl and Batgirl trying to prank or pull one over on the guys, that's too good to resist. So I suspect that I flipped through this at the time. Buy it? Are you kidding? I didn't have any money to buy comics. If I had 12 cents, they were going towards my Fantastic Four. Right. That didn't stop us from reading the comments on the spinner rack until that voice would come out from behind <laughs> the counter. Yeah. Buy it or get out. Exactly. 
was yours twelve cents too, or is it cheaper? Oh yeah, yes. Yeah. It would be another three four years before the price jump. Hmm. Approximately FF eighty eight uh, is where the the price jump occurs. Boy, I remember that vividly too. Walking up with twelve cents in my pocket to buy a comic and having them say that will be fifteen cents, and I looked at them like. Are you out of your mind? What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And they say, here, they pointed to the new price on the cover. Mm-hmm. What a shock. Yeah. I couldn't buy it. I reached in my pocket. I looked for three more cents. I didn't have it. I had to uh, go home and, I don't know, treat in a pop bottle for a two-cent deposit or something. Anyways, I was not able to buy it at that time. I was. That was a real, real big surprise to me. Yeah. The first of many price hikes. Now we complain because books are five or six dollars a piece. Mm-hmm. That's probably not the end of it either. I never saw books for sale at ten cents a piece. At least I never, I never, I never bought them. I never remember them. But it was the first one or two Fantastic Four issues. They were ten cents a piece. They jumped to twelve almost immediately, and that started the Marvel Silver Age. But I digress here. Yeah, I think thirty-five cents was my. Pricing point, and I, I distinctly remember when it went to 40 cents. Yeah, every time they make a jump, everybody would grumble and say, Boy, that's it, I'm bailing out. Yeah. But then we never did. We just kept coming back, right. paying a dollar a book, and then a dollar and a quarter, mm-hmm. and then it was a dollar fifty, and a dollar seventy-five. It just keeps growing growing. There's a whole story here about how Martin Goodman pulled a fast one and suckered DC. I'm not familiar enough to tell it with any accuracy, but he basically announced, yes, we're going to 25 cents a book, and DC followed suit, and then immediately after going to 25 cents a book, he backed off to 20 cents for the original size book instead of the, the double size one, and somehow DC was stuck in contracts where they couldn't drop their price, so he pulled a marketing coup, a switch up on them, and all of a sudden, for the first time, Marvel was exceeding sales over D.C. because they had slightly cheaper books on the spinner racks for a couple of months, if not a couple of years. It's a pretty important change up in, in, in their long, decades-long battle. It's worth researching. Maybe the guys on um, Back to the Bins can explain it more accurately. But I can tell you where it fell in the history of Marvel. It occurred in Fantastic Four 116, the end of the Overlord saga. Mm-hmm. That was a double-sized issue that was 25 cents. And that pretty much was the nail in the coffin. I was just about done with comics at that point because I couldn't afford that, and I was growing weary of it. It happens in the Thor run. I think it's about issue 193. It happens in the Avengers in issue 93, which is the Kree Skrull War, and that's the famous issue where Neil Adams comes on board and draws the journey to the center of the android, and that's where the, the Kree Skrull War really kicks into high gear as the artwork improves and the storyline improves, and just that was a real upgrade. I'm trying to think in terms of the X Men when that happened, I think it might be the death of Dark Phoenix. So one, no, it can't. Be. I'm not sure where it falls in the action. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> Did any image strike your fancy? 
Oh, in the book? Yeah. Um, I don't have it open. The, the glowing hand in the beginning, they never really explained what that was, except they explained that's when the switch occurred. Hmm. The uh, Supergirl carrying off the Fortress of Solitude? Yeah. It's too big. They should never have been able to pull that off. I knew who Batmite was. I'm not sure why. I knew Mr. McSplitalik, or however you say his name. Mm -hmm. I knew him from casual exposure in the early 60s. Again, this was a period when DC was doing gimmick covers and gimmick storylines and anything to hook the kiddies into buying another book. They weren't taking their heroes terribly seriously. The title, World's Finest, I always thought that that referred to Superman and Batman teaming up, that they were the world's finest heroes or the world's finest mm -hmm. detectives. That's what I thought the title referred to. And in fact, I would still make that assumption if you hadn't just corrected me. Well, I think that's what it's referring to, is those two together. Not being a DC fan, I'm not as familiar with the various moods or seasons of the various titles, although I was, I was watching when they introduced the Secret Six and Hawk and Dove and the Creeper. All these things fell about 1968, 1969. None of them seemed to gain traction or last terribly long. But I do remember that period of experimentation. I do like when the cover image appears in the book. Who? Uh, the cover image. I always like oh, that yeah. one. And it does appear as an image in the storyline, too. I always used to look for that as a kid. I remember trying to find that or figure out. That was a big deal when you'd recognize it, when you'd spot it. Mm-hmm. Let's see what caught my eye. Like you, I saw the gaseous hand capturing first Supergirl and then Batgirl on pages two and three. I liked all the stuff on page four that Superman and Batman and Robin donated to the time capsule. You see a miniature Batplane and Batmobile, statuettes of Superman, Batman, and Robin. Somebody has one of Superman's S emblems that they're going to put in there. Page six, I wasn't much for Batman getting down on his knees begging for Robin's life. I know Batman cared about Robin, but I don't think he'd go that far to beg for him on his hands and knees. Like you, I like on page 9, where Supergirl is lifting up the Fortress of Solitude, which I don't think she could do either, but it's a nice visual. Superman sporting a growth of beard on page 13, and that's also where Batman unmasks himself and sees in the mirror not the face of Bruce Wayne, but somebody else. It's always cool to see unmaskings in a comic book, which you get on page 15 and 16 of the fake Supergirl and the fake Batgirl, respectively. And I noticed right off a young McSpidalik, he still has orange or red hair, whatever color they were trying to distinguish. And I forgot to mention that there is a second story in here, which I won't really get into. It's called The Amazing Cube. Pretty much a mystery story, I think. But i got to tell you, when I think back on it, the symbolic covers that Jack Kirby moved into, boy, that's a special period. They were so distinctive and so unique in the industry. That symbolism, as opposed to an actual scene from the inside of the book, really, really spoke to me on a level that I couldn't tell you how, how important, how significant that is now as an adult. Those are the images that I want on a T-shirt. Those are the things that I just have to see the image, and I know what's in the book. I know what content is. Whether it's Thor or the Fantastic Four or Captain America or whatever he was drawing, 
I don't really have much else. Okay. To answer your question about World's Finest, it does say on the splash page, your two favorite heroes, Superman and Batman, put in my mind that they're considered the World's Finest. Yeah. I think just as Marvel had Marvel 2-in-1, mm-hmm. a run in the Bronze Age with the thing and whoever the guest star of the week was, right. or Marvel team-up being Spider-Man, Spider-Man and whoever the, the guest I think that's what this book was in terms of Superman and, and Batman, that mm-hmm. that was its common, that was its boilerplate start, right. the starting point of every issue mm-hmm. or every tale, that, oh, we're going to combine the two of them. I wonder how well it sold compared to the other titles. Maybe somebody has, has That's a good question. That must have done well, or they probably will stop publication of it. Well, I don't know. It seems like sometimes they really they were stubborn and determined, and issues and series that I thought should have been axed long ago would limp along and struggle along, and I was never surprised that some of them were canceled or killed. I'll give you a really good example in D.C., Brother Power, the, the geek. Oh my gosh, that was a terrible book. I don't think it lasted two issues. Terrible concept. Why did they think that was going to go? That was one. I was surprised that the Creeper did not get more traction. Another one that I thought was Mercy Killing, The Inferior Five. I'm sorry. Comedy, tongue in cheek, I didn't care for it. The Doom Patrol, I could never figure out what the appeal was. But I was so surprised to see Dead Man go and go and go. Because I thought it was a novel concept, but I couldn't figure out where the story was leading. Yeah. And these days, it's collected in a trade and retired after, I don't know, 10 issues, 12 issues, whatever it was. And we look at that as being a high point for DC, which is really kind of unusual. It was such an offbeat concept. Well, we've been talking for more than an hour. I suppose we should probably wrap this up. Yeah, probably so. Well, a tip of the hat to the guys at Back to the Bins for allowing us on. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We certainly enjoy your series. We hope you've enjoyed your vacation. All kidding aside, we're honored to be allowed to guest host for a week. You can always ask for help from us, whether it's posting an image from a comic or uh, filling in to be a guest host. You only have to ask. I think they know that. No offense was intended, of course. (laughs) We always have to start out our podcast with comedy. And I could probably make a pact with you now if, you, if you'd like. If you ever want a podcast as an assistant editor, I'm there for you if they want us. In addition, I too would like to thank Paul and Scott and Bill for allowing us this time on their podcast. It always amazes me that they can get out a podcast every week full of good content and good comics. I'm very appreciative that I have this to listen to at work. I may never get to meet you guys in person, but I consider you all my friends. Well, that's all I've got. Good to talk with you and commiserate over these two comic books. We'll see you. See you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. 
Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Labor Day weekend, and I probably should spend some time with the family, and I'm sure that you've got commitments as well. So. I want to ask you if you had any comic news to begin with. I don't really... Uh, Nothing strong, but I occasionally will hear echoes as various people. Well, okay, the latest issue, as we record this, the latest episode of Back in the Bins mm-hmm. featured uh, Dr. Bill and Caramel Hero right. on as well. Uh-huh. Right. And they shared a couple of things that you know, my ears perked up. Mm-hmm. I think it was the House of X that they were talking about as being intriguing, but they didn't spoil it. You know, I might be tempted to go down to my comic shop, if it still existed, and try to pick up an issue. But at six bucks a copy? No. Uh, I'm not so sure. Maybe I'll wait till it falls in the quarter bin. Hi, Professor Allen. Uh, <laughs> last time I spent that kind of money, it was Spider-Man 700. And I turned it around, and I sold it to another buddy of mine who was very interested and missed it. Boy, I, I'm sorry, guys. I won't show out money like that for a brand new comic. It's, no. it's, I've reached the end of my road. It's just nuts. I almost sound like it off my long cast, too. Uh, yeah. We're getting the old guys. That's, that's right. They reveal Hair Metal Hero, I think, said that he turned 40. Uh, Dr. Bill says he turned 50. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, you know, he's the oldest man in the room. It's like, guess what, folks? I'm 63 and a half next week. <laughs> I outrank you all. I should be uh, a guest on that. Get off my lawn, Ted. Mm-hmm. So you're older than Paul, too? Yes, yeah. by a little bit. He's an expert and thrilled by the, the Bronze Age. I'm a decade before in the Silver Age in the 60s. I left just about the time that he and some of those guys were starting to tune in. In some ways, I can appreciate what they're talking about, but I had left comics while I was in college, and that's why they're filling in the blanks for me. Mm-hmm. How about you? I'm 50. I'll be 51 uh, next month. Really? No, Mm -hmm. you're a good deal older than I thought. But that's okay. Dr. Bill will probably have a cake for you when they pay for your flight tickets to go down to Disney World or share the barbecue in New York City. (laughs) I can never seem to get an invitation to those events. Oh, well. I'd love to meet those guys, but I know I'd be nervous in anticipation of meeting them. Well, maybe they'll throw a get-together sometime in a public place and invite folks in mm-hmm. advance. That, that might be cool. On the other hand, it might be really awkward. Yeah, I got me cousin Bill somehow. Yeah. I think his family's in Ohio, I think. Or his daughter goes to college there. I can't remember which. I want to say Wapakoneta. I don't remember the details, and I don't want to yeah. share too much. He's already set it on, on one of the shows, so I guess it's no big secret. Maybe we'll get to go down to Disneyland sometime and we'll be able to look up Scott. Or Disney World, I guess. We'll be able to look Scott up. We'll have to see how that... If anything's left after Hurricane Yeah, Boy, I was just going to say that. First thing I, I told him, neither are usually that, that worried about these things, but 
I told him I was to think about them anyway and protect their comic. I have the utmost respect for those of our Vins guys that put one out every week yeah. to keep a regular schedule. That is absolutely amazing, and my hat is off to, to all of you guys that pull that off. That's a serious amount of time and family resources. Uh, thanks for all the hours of entertainment as I commute to and from work. Most of my other things at work, I always have to have a notebook right beside my iPod so I can take my notes and write my emails. That's pretty cool. I know they really like your emails. That's always a high point of the show. I hope so. I try hard to be entertaining for them. If they appreciate it, I appreciate it.